Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out, and it's also hashtag FOF, or F-O-F, Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week-to-week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. I liked it better when I used to do that in the House of Representatives. (laughs) It was a much bigger gala. Good evening, and welcome to tonight's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Ellen Tauscher. I'm the former member of Congress from the 10th Congressional District of California. (laughs) Walnut Creek. Thank you. And I'm former Undersecretary of State for Arms Control and International Security. That's enough formers. I'm currently a member of the Commonwealth Club Board of Directors and Governors, and I'm proud to say the moderator for tonight's very special program. Tonight, on International Women's Day, we are honored to have two very prominent women. Former United States Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. Thank you. And San Francisco's own Katie Albright. And this is a generational conversation about the challenges facing America and their possible solutions. With issues of immigration, civil rights, gender gender equality, and the role of government domestically, and the place that the U.S. is in the world at stake, we have a lot to talk about. Let me say a little bit more about our speakers. Madeleine Albright was the 64th Secretary of State serving under President Clinton. In 1997, Dr. Albright was named the first female Secretary of State and became at that time the highest-ranking woman in the history of the U.S. government. As Secretary of State, Dr. Albright reinforced America's alliances, advocated for democracy and human rights, and promoted American trade, business, labor, and environmental standards abroad. She received the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the nation's highest civilian honor from President Obama in 2012. Today, Secretary Albright is chair of Albright Stonebridge Group and Albright Capital Management, an investment advisory firm focused on emerging markets. She is also professor of the practice of diplomacy at the Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. Secretary Albright holds a doctorate from Columbia University's Department of Public Law and Government. Our Katie Albright, is executive director of the San Francisco Child Abuse Prevention Center, a community-based <laughs> community-based organization working to prevent child abuse and redu- reduce its devastating impact. Under her tenure, the organization has received numerous awards. Katie Albright was previously the policy director for the San Francisco Education Fund and co-director of policy and outreach at Preschool California. She also served as deputy city attorney and general counsel for the San Francisco 
Unified School District and Commissioner of the San Francisco Juvenile Probation Commission. Ms. Albright also co-founded and taught at the Keogitao Nursery School and Community Center in Nairobi, Kenya. Ms. Albright has graduated with honors from Georgetown University Law Center. So please give another warm welcome to Madeline Albright and Katie Albright. So where do we begin? We do live in interesting times. Uh, so we're so pleased to have them both here. And before we discuss the challenges confronting America, uh, I'd like to get a little personal, because I think it's really fantastic to have a generational pair like you that are so accomplished. And on International Women's Day, there might be something that we might want to say. So can you just tell us a little bit about your relationship? And how would you describe it, Katie? <laughs> <laughs> Here's my opportunity, Mom. <laughs> we have an amazing relationship. We definitely had our moments, particularly when I was in high school. Yeah. I wasn't one to like to follow directions. But as you were reading all the accomplishments that Mom has had, these were something that were really just part of our life. And that incredible, proud moment of her yeah. becoming Secretary of State was just one of the most incredible moments of our lives because we had watched her be a mother. And frankly, as I'll say more today, at the deep in the heart of it, she's a really an amazing mother. Yeah. Well, she'd have to be because all of the work that you did when you were at state, because I came into Congress in January of 97 and you were getting sworn in then. It was President Clinton's second term. And there was so much optimism. So many wonderful things happened. But before we get to that, tell us a little bit about your relationship with Katie. Well, Katie is my youngest daughter. Um, and we have had a fabulous relationship. She was saying there were moments because she was fabulous to her friends on the phone and <laughs> very talkative. And then she wouldn't talk to me. She was Katie the Clam. And uh, so I was trying to figure out how we worked with that. We were very good at what we called erranding. We would go erranding a lot. Um, and we really do have a, a terrific relationship, and we have had. Um, and it's special in terms of uh, we have similar interests uh, and with her older sisters. Uh, the part that was, Katie's older sisters are twins, and so we are the ones that became the twinsies in the family. But <laughs> last night we had a perfect experience because when, when Katie was a teenager, and she was always late coming home at night, and I would be there and I'd say, I am paralyzed with fear. Why are you? Uh, so last night I was out for dinner, and I start getting these texts saying, I'm paralyzed, paralyzed with fear. <laughs> Well, you were late. Yeah, I was late. <laughs> yeah. So, I've read all of your books, Madeline, and, and every one of them is a lesson in history, but also a lesson about you. Because I think you are um, so prolific and so interestingly able to tell your story, but, but knit it as part of the American story, and have people relate very, very easily. Um, what do you think about the passions of your life? What made you decide to take the path you did? And how did you make it all happen? Because you were spinning a lot of plates. 
when, when being married and having children and having your career. Tell us a little bit more well, about that. I have to say, the truth is that my whole life is an accident uh, because what happened was my parents were Czechoslovaks um, and in March 1939, two years after I was born, the Nazis marched into Prague and my parents decided to pick up their two-year-old daughter and leave. Um, and so we spent the war in England uh, as refugees uh, and then the, the war ended and my father was made the Czechoslovak ambassador to Yugoslavia. The little girl in the national costume that gave flowers at the airport, that's what I did for a living. Uh, <laughs> and then the communists took over and we came to the United States and I was 11 years old. Um, and my whole life has been determined, I think, by being an American. And when people ask me what's the most important thing that ever happened, it's becoming an American. And so my life is based on gratitude to be able to have grown up in this country. And so I know it may sound hokey, but I really do try to make a difference. And that is what it's been about. And I've had terrific opportunities. And I never planned a life like this, but it seems to have worked out. And, uh, and so I'm, I am an American story. And especially at this time when there are questions about refugees and immigrants and naturalized citizens, uh, I, I kind of a poster child for that. And I love to do naturalization ceremonies. And so I can't uh, swear people in because I'm, in contrast to you guys, not an officer of the law. So, uh, but I can give people their naturalization certificates. And the first time I did it, was on July 4th of 2000 at uh, Monticello, at Thomas oh, Jefferson's place. <clears throat> and, uh, and I'd give people this piece of paper, and I'd say, I have exactly the same piece of paper. It's the most important document you'll ever get. Uh, you know, keep it safe. And then some man said, uh, later, who hadn't heard the whole story, he said, can you believe I'm a refugee and I got my naturalization certificate from the Secretary of State? And I said, can you believe that a refugee is Secretary of State. State. Isn't that fantastic? Yeah. 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 So, Katie, after you stopped being a clam, <laughs> how did you... It's only with her. Only with her. I think we all did that to our mothers yeah, yeah. and felt bad about it later. Yeah. Um, your passions. So you do have very similar passions to your mom. Tell, tell us about how they developed and, and how you went about getting yourself to San Francisco. Well, in some ways, my passion, I think, stems from my mom, but also from something, somebody who I think was really dear and important to my mother, which was her father, yes. who I call Bumpa. Uh, Bumpa taught me how to read. I hated, I really didn't want to learn how to read, and he told me, you need to learn how to read. But he also um, taught me about the importance of education and how education can really be an equalizer in the community and uh, no matter where you're from. And that has become my driving force. I'm passionate about education and getting kids up and out and thriving in life. And two experiences for me when I just became a new lawyer, my first client was a 26-year-old grandmother my second client was a teenager who was going through the judicial bypass system in order to get um, an abortion because her mother's um, boyfriend had raped her. Okay. And, and I knew that the legal system wasn't 
going to provide the support that these families needed. And I wanted to figure out a different path forward. And then I had the opportunity to work with Louise Rene at the city attorney's office and then at the San Francisco Unified School District and had the opportunity to work with amazing educators who were doing so much in our schools and teachers. And, um, and I also realized that no matter how amazing the education reform that we were doing in our schools, if kids were coming to school hungry, they weren't going to learn algebra. Right. And if kids were terrified to go home, they weren't going to learn how to read. And so for me, the work I do to support families and strengthen their resiliency is really all about education mm -hmm. and ensuring kids have a future. That's why I do the work yeah. I do. That's great. <laughs> I have to add something. When yes. Katie applied to law school, she said she wanted to learn a language so she could help children. So she is doing what she loves to do. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, that's quite an advocacy journey. Yeah. So we decided that we would discuss some heady issues today, because why not? <laughs> it seems like we do have a lot of challenges now. What do each of you see as the greatest challenge confronting Americans domestically in, in the world? Trump. <laughs> and if that, that's a one-word answer, if it was a two-word answer, would it be Donald Trump? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> would you like to expound on well, that? Well, <laughs> let me We're say, I, I um, do think that we are living in a particularly difficult time for a number of reasons. Um, internationally, because the system that was created after the end of World War II here, frankly, uh, has most people around 70 a little shopworn. So <clears throat> the system really does need fixing, and you've been a part of it, uh, and have seen the various issues of how the institutions work. And then domestically, <clears throat> I think that, um, as was shown, we have more problems than we thought we did uh, in terms of jobs for people, automation, uh, climate change, uh, various aspects. And I must say that even if uh, our friend had gotten elected, it would still be a very complicated time. Right. It just would have been done by somebody who understood how the government works. And so uh, <clears throat> I think that the issue is now how somebody who has not served in office, who clearly is smart, there's no question right. about that, uh, is in a system that is very different from a business and trying to figure out how it works. And frankly, it's been taking a little bit longer than I thought it would. Uh, and I think that they didn't take enough advantage of what is a fascinating period in American politics, which is the transition. That's right. uh, it starts the first week in November and goes until the second That's week right. in January. And I've been transitioned into and done the transitioning. The latter is more fun. But the bottom line is it's a period where the crown jewels are turned over. You really learn where things are. You get people that you want working with you. And that all hasn't happened, and That's so right. they're a little bit behind schedule. So I want to turn to Katie and ask her about the domestic part, but you brought something up, and, you, and you're not only a professor and a, a diplomat, but you're also a businesswoman. So we, we were lucky to have lunch yesterday, yeah. and I meant to ask this yesterday, but I know you know the answer to this. During the campaign, there was a lot of supposition that because he was a successful businessman, that he would know how to walk in and get everything done in the government. 
There is a big difference between people and business and what the government is meant to do. Some people may think it's pretty obvious, but a lot of people still don't understand what's wrong. What do you think is wrong about that? I, I think the difference is that when you're in government, you are a servant of the people. Uh, that is what you are doing, and you are not working on a bottom line and profit. Right. You are working on trying to figure out um, what the social contract is, by the way. I think that what is one of the issues is at the moment the social contract is broken right. because people give up their individual rights in order to be protected and helped by the government. That's right. the purpose of it. And I think that that is a difference between uh, being in business and being in government. I do think that businesses can, as Benjamin Franklin said, can do well by doing good, That's right. but it, it has a different approach to it. Right. Yeah. So Katie, how do you see, um, there, we do have a sense that things are, are somewhat broken, and, and the compact between average American hardworking families and what they expect institutions, not just the government, but institutions overall, to do for them has been increasingly disappointing. They don't get what they think, uh, and they're left <clears throat> you know, in a situation where they can't make up the difference. How do you see that <clears throat> in San Francisco? What do you see? The, the problems that we have in, in, domestically, both in San Francisco and across the country? Well, going back to the concept of the um, social compact, I think where we are right now is that we have a president who is so focused on one group of people, but when you become a president, you represent everybody. And so it's a broken promise to everybody. And we are seeing it around the country, around the world, we are certainly seeing it at a local level. And when I think about what's been broken, it's the promise for the future. And what is the world that we're leaving for our children? Whether or not it's a failing education system or really sadly a more and more crumbling healthcare system every day to climate change. And when I think about my children, they are so scared about what the future may hold because the adults in their world are not protecting their future. Whether or not it's social security or taxes, I mean, I think we can list sort of the parade of horribles. What it's happening at the local level is that it's so much significant pressure because if the feds aren't gonna step in and the states and thank goodness we live in an amazing state of California, exactly, yes. thank goodness we live in the amazing yeah. state of California, then and then equally so in San Francisco, where we're going to protect vulnerable populations and we're going to create that safety net. But what happens if we don't live here? What happens to the rest of the communities that actually are equally vulnerable but don't have wise elected officials to make smart policies to protect vulnerable populations? We're doing a great job in San Francisco, but we're feeling the pressure and we will continue to feel the pressure of the fed, federal and state level. Yeah, you know, can you imagine living in a state where the governor didn't accept the federal offer of more Medicaid yeah. eight years ago? And what are those people doing right now? So we have a, a, a number of terrific questions. I love, I, uh, the previous time I moderated was Michael Hayden about the CIA. This is a lot more fun. Um, <clears throat> although I'd like to ask him a couple questions today. Yeah. Um, but these are great questions, but um, so, so, Madeline, there's a really good question here. Can, will Rex, can and will Rex Tillerson be a steadying influence on President Trump? 
and will be he if be effective as Secretary of State? Well, I think um, that one of the issues is that it's kind of early to answer that, but it may become too late. Uh, <clears throat> that what has to happen is he also is somebody that has not served in the government before. Right. He's been a very successful businessman. Um, and I think, of, uh, from everything I've seen, a very decent human being. Mm -hmm. uh, you've been at the State Department. Mm -hmm. uh, we talk about it as the building. Right. Uh, and it is not that easy, um, even when you're there all the time and you know uh, what the job is mm -hmm. and try to. So his problem is he does not have a deputy. No. Um, and uh, people that are familiar with the department know there are an awful lot of undersecretaries. You were one. They ha you have to be. There has to be an intention to nominate, then nominate, go through the whole vetting right. process, have your hearing, and given the speed of things, it's going to take a while. So he doesn't have a full building. Right. Um, I also think that um, the question is, what are his, he had a hearing, that's all we really know about some of his views, uh, and uh, he's been very quiet which quiet. is interesting. He, he gave a very good talk when he came into the department mm -hmm. in order to say hello to everybody, and I mm -hmm. think people were impressed. But he has not taken uh, questions. Um, this morning I was on Andrea Mitchell, and before that, yesterday, she was basically dragged out of the, you know, the fancy room right. on the seventh, uh, because she was asking uh, Tillerson a question while he was in a meeting with, or at the end of a meeting with the Ukrainian foreign minister. That doesn't happen usually. Uh, and so I think that he does have to kind of show uh, how he sees the department. The other part that is a genuine problem is what the uh, administration has come up with as a budget. Oh. Um, and just to put this into some perspective, the U.S. budget is divided into functions, and function 050 is the defense function, and it has around $600 billion, billion dollars. in it before any of the changes. The uh, one that we had, uh, function 150, has less than $50 billion in it, and it has to pay the diplomats, make sure the buildings are secure, and have programs in the buildings. USAID, all the things, pay our dues to various international organizations, and they have suggested that it be cut by 37%. So the question is, what are the plans for the State Department? And I was very proud to be Secretary of State. Um, it is the senior spot in the cabinet. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm waiting. Yeah, you know, I was disappointed to see that he finally found someone that he wanted to have nominated to be deputy. And it was uh, someone that had worked in previous administrations, including Republican administrations. But he was a never-Trumper. And he was going through the process, and the White House blackballed him. And so I think for somebody like Rex Tillerson, it must be, I don't know if he's ever really heard the word no, uh, but to have the person that you've chosen to be your deputy blackballed by yeah. somebody like Steve Bannon in the White House has to be shock. And he hasn't come up with anybody else. Yeah. And so that, that's, I'm very glad to hear he is taking a trip now uh, yes. to the Far East. He's going to Japan, South Korea, and China. Uh, and uh, primarily, I'm sure it has to do with North Korea. So he is going. Um, it, it is very important. The first trip by the Secretary of State is always very important. Right. And 
I wanted to show um, in the past what had happened. Uh, my predecessors had all gone to Europe on their first trip. I decided that I wanted to go to Europe and Asia. Right. And, and then Hillary did go to Asia, and he's now going to Asia. So there has been sort of a rebalancing. Mm -hmm. so, but I'm very glad he's going. Mm -hmm. So um, not that we're doing politics that much, but there's a good question here about the presidential election. Um, some, some people seemed reticent to vote for a woman no matter how competent. When do you think we will elect a woman president, Katie? <laughs> Definitely in my lifetime, and I hope it's going to be in, my, in all of our lifetimes. Uh, just on the last question, I, I, we are all, and you said it, living in incredibly unsettled times. And just to be able to hear both of you speak about in great detail to understand the budgets and to understand where this country needs to move forward is incredibly reassuring. So thank you both for <laughs> providing a little solace for all of us. Um, but we're out of government. <laughs> but, but I would say to your question, we have uh, incredible woman leaders that are coming up within the, both the Democrat and the Republican parties. And we need to look to see where those leaders are moving forward and be able to support them. I am thrilled that our Senator Kamala Harris is yes. now uh, yeah. in yeah. office. Yeah. But, you all, but you also see the stance that Republican women took in terms of the uh, confirmation hearings for the Secretary of Education, and we really need to come together and really think about what that is. Hillary clearly had and was the most competent uh, elected official to move forward, and I think our country is getting more ready to be at that stage. And I actually think that President Trump is helping us to create no. that next yeah. step. No, I think that's right. <clears throat> Lisa Murkowski, who's a senator from Alaska, and Susan Collins, who's a senator from Maine, have really stepped into the breach. And, you know, it's not surprising to me that, um, you know, we have a, a lot of women dominating politics in California on the federal level, uh, both in the House and our two female senators. But uh, in the Republican Party, it's the women that are stepping up for values. And, and you know, I very much appreciate that. Um, so what are we going to do? I think people are... The people that I know that finally got out of bed around Thanksgiving after the election <laughs> and, and, you know, decided they were going to try to go on with their lives, um, you know, I think people are looking for things to do. I think people are bereft of how to manage what every day is either a tweet storm or some kind of uh, distraction that is meant to not have us focus on the things, including the fact that a foreign power like Russia interfered in our election. We're, we're nowhere near getting to the bottom of that. What, what do you think um, people should be doing to organize themselves? Uh, I think resist is great, but I don't think it tells me enough about what I'm meant to do. What do you think? Well, I think there are lots of discussions going on as to whether we should, quote, normalize Trump, which is to say it'll be okay, right. or whether we need to figure out <clears throat> what did go wrong and try to be more active. I'm in the latter group. I think that what we need to do is to sort out certain avenues that have to be um, followed and according to our expertise. But I also think that we have to do much more action locally. 
And it goes together, one, because you actually can talk to your leaders at a local level, and then also uh, because it does create a pipeline of people that then can move up, and then you will have people that have somehow been public servants and are able to help. I do think that we have to kind of organize ourselves a bit, though. Yeah. Um, and marches are important, but they're not enough. Right. And so I think we have to become very active. I do think um, that we need to call our members of Congress, mm -hmm. uh, and there are a number of different ways to do it these days, uh, and, and because they are there representing us. And so I think that there has to be very specific action. On foreign policy issues, for me, having, I have always been interested in foreign policy, and when I've worked in campaigns, I have always said that um, there's a spectrum, domestic to foreign, uh, in order to make myself more important in campaigns, but the bottom line is it's true. The, basis, the domestic basis of our foreign policy in a democracy is very important, and so I think being able to have people understand that our safety does depend on other countries in the world. You cannot isolate America and think that Americans will be safe if we do that. It is absolutely not true in the 21st century. No, that's absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. Our guests are Madeleine Albright, former U.S. Secretary of State, and her daughter Katie Albright, Executive Director of the San Francisco Child Abuse Prevention Center. And we are discussing the greatest challenges facing America in 2017 and the possible solutions to those challenges. You know, Katie, you said that we're lucky to be in California, and of course we are. I, I, I would tell people I'm from the free state of California, and now I say it more seriously <laughs> these days. But, um, you know, there are things coming out of Washington to punish California. Uh, we even have Republican members of Congress from California that are trying to figure out how to deny our ability to use our own money in transportation funding to electrify Caltrain, something that we should get to do. We're a donor state. We should have our money come back and go where we say it should. Um, I'm sure that you're seeing this on the local level. What are you worried about, and what do you think we should be doing? Absolutely, and it goes from the electric, electrified trains to the Trans Bay Terminal that right. is impacting deeply in San Francisco to uh, really near and dear to our city's heart is creating a sanctuary city. That's right. And Mayor Lee and the Board of Supervisors have been incredibly uh, proactive and forward, as have other mayors and other cities have said that, that we are going to protect our immigrant population in whatever course it takes. I can tell you, running a community-based organization, that our immigrant community is incredibly fearful. And not sending kids to school, not going to medical appointments, not engaging in our economy. And it, so it hurts all of us as a city when those kinds of components happen, and it deeply hurts our families and those that are trying to work with families to support them. I'm, I'm happy to talk about it in much more detail. Um, but I think that the hopeful moment is that we're all coming together. Yes. And we are all on the same page. And we have been getting, as community-based organizations, um, support and help and guidance from, from our other community organizations, as well as our city partners, so that we really can support together mm -hmm. our families who are in crisis. And that value system 
is incredibly inspirational to be in. So it gives me hope and a lot of optimism that together we really can create a world that is safe for our families, safe for our children, despite the impacts and, um, and retribution that's happening on our city and happening at a state level as well. Yeah, I've never been more proud to be a Californian. Uh, I think really? a lot of us feel that way. And, and, and more on that, and I think the concern that we're seeing in the Affordable Care Act and the mm -hmm. changes with the, with the um, proposed new system is the impact of what it's gonna do to our California people. 3.7 3 million right. people may not have health insurance. Um, in 2020 um, and continue and continue and continue. And these are people that we so deeply as a community want to protect and it helps us all. That's right. So North Korea, Russian interference in the election, you know, does he really like NATO or doesn't he really like NATO? This is a very, very tumultuous world and the State Department is now facing a 37% cut. When I went to Congress in 1997 on the Armed Services Committee, the budget for the Pentagon was $380 billion, which was a lot of money. It's now 100% bigger than that. State Department has faced cuts over time. Talk a little bit about how important it is to diplomacy and development and, and why having all of your eggs in the basket of armies while it's important to have, what does that mean for us as a civilization? <clears throat> well, let me say, I, I teach, as you pointed out, at Georgetown, and I say foreign policy is just trying to get some country to do what you want. That's all it is. So what are the tools? And so my course is called the National Security Toolbox. And we are the most powerful country in the world, but there are not an awful lot of tools in that toolbox, and you have to figure out how to use them. So there's bilateral diplomacy and multilateral diplomacy, and then the economic tools, which are aid and trade, and if you want to take them away, sanctions. Uh, and then the threat of the use of force, the use of force, law enforcement, and intelligence. That's it. And the art is trying to figure out which ones you use when. Uh, I have to say, uh, when he was still General Mattis, now Secretary Mattis, said, if you uh, don't have a large um, State Department budget, I'm going to need more ammunition. I think what happened is they misunderstood what that meant, right. and so <clears throat> they have given him more ammunition. Um, but, and Secretary Gates had talked about um, getting more money into the State right. Department. And what I always found interesting when I was in office is that often it's the military that doesn't want to go to war. Um, there was a time I was standing outside the Situation Room um, in the White House with General Shalik Kashvili, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and Secretary Rubin walked by and he said, force and diplomacy, and Shalik said, and which is which? And so the bottom line, the way that that combines is important. Diplomacy really is essential uh, in terms of that's how governments talk to each other. Uh, and you need trained people to do that, people that understand the language of a country, the history. And then um, I wrote a book about the role of religion in foreign policy. I think our diplomats now have to understand the religious basis of a particular country. The economic tools. Uh, trade is actually not a four-letter word. Uh, it is something that is important in terms of building our economy and our relationships on that. And obviously, intelligence is a very important part of it. So all those tools need to be used. And the State Department is there 
as one of the, the major players with the tools, but it has to be empowered to do it with the right people. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So Katie, um, as you sit here in San Francisco, and we are a sanctuary city, and we do have great leadership that is, I think, really strong. Um, but you look around the rest of the country and you see families uh, in complete panic. And you see, even in California, that there have been some people rounded up um, going to pick up their children at school. Uh, do you see a difference in the policy of ICE and uh, looking at rounding up people since the administration has changed? Do you think that there really is a sense that uh, the Muslim ban and other things are targeting people the way we're afraid they are? I would say absolutely. And the perception is also real and yeah. true. So that under the Obama administration, there was clearly enforcement of immigration. And we were feeling it in our communities. About three weeks ago, in one of our community centers in San Francisco, there was an ICE appearance. It happened days after the ban came down. There was such fear and concern in that community center. Good Samaritan and the staff there did the most incredible work to ensure that the children in the center were protected because a childcare center is not the place for ICE. Right. And they came to the wrong location to incarcerate, to, to deport somebody. And it sent a panic throughout the community. On that same day, there were several other domestic violence organizations that were also had ICE appearances. I was actually in the mayor's office on that day, and uh, the, our new police chief was there. And the concern and the text messaging that was going on and the immediate response of our community was quite profound in order to be able to protect this community center and the families and the children mm -hmm. that are there. That same action could have happened under the Obama administration, but that panic and fear and vulnerability wouldn't have been there. These are real lives, and we read it, and we read the, the, the most tragic stories in the paper, um, and then when you meet the families that are actually experiencing this and the separation, people just want to be in America. And we're not giving them the ability to do that. And they want to be in a place where they can raise their children. And they want to be in a place where they can create hope and, and, and get away from the savagery that's happening in their own countries. And we're not allowing them to do that. And we definitely are seeing that at a local level. Right. We were together in Munich a couple of weeks ago. John, General John Kelly, now Secretary yeah. of Homeland Security, John Kelly was there. We've both known him for many years. A good man. Um, actually, he is uh, the most senior uh, military officer to have a son killed in Iraq, um, a captain. And um, I saw him on TV yesterday, and I heard him saying that, yes, there may be some, some sense that at these border crossings that they would actually separate children from adults. And it sent a chill down my spine. And I couldn't really believe that it was... John Kelly saying this, but that this administration would actually be answering a question about what people's fears have become in such a kind of offhanded, subjective way without either saying yes or no. Hopefully no would be the answer. You both have different perspectives on this from your place in the, in the world. What do you think this means to people, Madeline? 
when they think that we actually might take people, because most of the people that come across the southern border actually are not from Mexico. If they're fleeing uh, in a humanitarian sense, it's from other countries south of there. What do you think that says about us? Well, it's un-American is the right. only way that I can see it. You know, that, um, that, um, it's interesting. Um, Statue of Liberty has written on it, huddled masses and yearning to be free. And yesterday I was doing a radio talk show and uh, somebody said, Statue of Liberty is about our freedom. And I thought, I wasn't going to argue, but maybe, you know. Was it that, a him by any chance? What? Was it some guy? That, yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, and, uh, so I think it's a misunderstanding of what America is about. Um, and we are a country based on diversity and on generosity of spirit and an understanding. People, on the whole, do not want to leave the country where they were born. Uh, they're more comfortable, they know the language, they have extended family, etc. So in order to take that step, it's already a huge sacrifice in some way. I think the issues coming from Central America, where people are actually sending their children ahead of them alone, I can't visualize this. We were worried where your kids were today, you know, so... And you knew where they were. And, we're. and we know, you know, and so that whole sense of you can put yourself in that position of all of a sudden having your children taken away from you, um, and then where are they going to some detention center and what is going to happen? I have to say, that one of the things that I am worried about is, uh, we were talking about Secretary Tillerson. So what happened when the first ban came out, I happened to actually be on TV and they interrupted it in order to watch the press conference. And I could not believe that this general was kind of saying, well, I kind of knew about it and we knew some, I mean, it was just completely dispiriting and demoralizing to watch him. And this is somewhat better, but not yet. And I think the question for me, and you've been in the government, what makes government interesting and good and democratic is if you actually can state your diverse views. That's right. That's what it's about. And it's good to have a president that actually likes you to argue in front of him. I worked for one of those. <laughs> uh, and so the bottom line is there's clearly something going on where they don't yet have a sense of when they can state their views uh, and that the president might want to hear them. We have quite a few questions about the pins. Yep. So you have a beautiful pin on tonight, and you have a pin? I yep. do, child abuse prevention pin. Yeah. Yeah. I think we all want one of those. Yeah. I'll make sure you have them. Yeah. Tell, <laughs> tell us more about your pins, Madeline, and about, about the one you have on tonight. Well, the pin story is that I clearly like jewelry. And when I <clears throat> got to the United Nations, uh, it was right after the Gulf War, and the ceasefire had been translated into a series of sanctions resolutions, and I was an instructed ambassador, and my instructions were to make sure the sanctions stayed on. And so I said perfectly terrible things about Saddam Hussein constantly, and he deserved it. He'd invaded Kuwait. And so um, pretty soon there was a poem that appeared in the papers in Baghdad comparing me to many things, but among them an unparalleled serpent. And I had a snake pin, so I wore it whenever we talked about Iraq. Uh, and so I think you've all seen how the ambassadors go out and talk to the press 
So all of a sudden, the camera zeroes in. The reporter says, why are you wearing that snake pin? And I said, because Saddam Hussein compared me to an unparalleled serpent. And then I thought, well, this is fun. So I went out, and I bought a lot of costume jewelry to depict what we were going to do. So on good days, I wore flowers and butterflies and balloons, and on bad days, horrible scorpions and animals. And the other ambassadors figured out what we were doing, and so that's how it all started. <laughs> it's <you know>. brilliant. <laughs> That's brilliant. <clears throat> when we were in, in uh, Munich, Madeline, you and I were at a, a dinner with a, a person that is a foreign minister of a nice European country, not a big one, not a small one, a good friend of ours, who looked over to me and said, I'm a little afraid about sharing my classified secrets with the White House. I know people were saying th similar yeah. things to you. Um, you, you launched uh, a fantastic review of NATO a few years ago, and you mentioned the institution, the United Nations, that was created here. We do have in major institutions that are not as healthy as they should be, not as, as robust as they must be, and not as 21st century or digital as they have to be to deal with the problems we have. What would be the two or three things that you would tackle first as we look for some kind of sense of doing things. What should, what should we be telling people we want done in Washington, or what should we be advocating ourselves, uh, either in the NGO world or uh, in other institutions, to get delivery of better institutions for us to, to be there when we, when we need them? I think that um, what is very important is to make sure that the institutions stay relevant. Uh, so, for instance, what happened, um, actually Hillary had asked me to do this, right. is uh, it was the 60th anniversary of NATO, and the question was, what was its mandate going to be? And just not being afraid to kind of look at what it needed to do was important, and I think we can't kind of treat them just as statues. They have to be living. The other part is to make sure that good people serve in those, so that people that are asked to go to them as uh, international kind of uh, civil servants, that they are the best that we have. And then, I have been pushing this for a long time, a lot of the system of the world is based on nation states. And that's the, the basic unit since, as we all learned in school, 1648. And as Henry Kissinger tells us. Because um, he was there. Um, <laughs> Um, but I do think that what is interesting is there are more and more non-state actors that need to be a part of it. And you were talking about NGOs right. need to be a part of it. The private sector needs to be a part mm -hmm. of it. And so the system isn't set up to have them at the table. So, for instance, any major American corporation, uh, Coca-Cola, for instance, has a larger budget than the country of Lithuania, and yet Lithuania ends up being president of the Security Council, mm -hmm. and Coca-Cola or whatever is not at the table until some decision has been taken. So I think the system has to be able to absorb more the talents of people. Then what has to happen is there has to be some way to use the new technology to actually figure out who's doing what because there are overlapping things and then some lacunae, so that, that needs to happen. And then we need to learn lessons from the past. I mean, you and I were in a meeting about cyber, mm -hmm. 
and you were the undersecretary that dealt with arms control and technology issues, some of the lessons we learned from arms control issues could, in fact, be transferred to try to figure out some kind of rules of the road That's right. uh, for, um, tech, for how cyber works. Right. Because cyber is the issue of the day, uh, and it isn't just the new you know, toy here. It is something that raises questions about sharing intelligence, who has access to what, who's playing with our mm -hmm. minds. And so I think that those are issues. And the answer to the question of how to keep the institutions um, alive and well and uh, flexible. What do you think about WikiLeaks? Uh, I am, well, I think they're very bad, I have mm -hmm. to say, because part of the thing uh, is the following. A lot of the initial WikiLeaks leaks were based on um, information that diplomats were sending back to Washington. Well, a lot of it is gossip, uh, and it is based on what people learn, and it undermines the whole issue of trust and can, how does, how does an American diplomat get information if all of a sudden everything is out? I think the latest uh, leaks are terribly bad in terms of what it's done to our intelligence, uh, trust in intelligence, and I don't see the purpose of it. I really don't. I think it's prurient, uh, and it's just a matter of, you know, all this information, but I think it undermines the That's capabilities right. of the toolbox, as mm -hmm. I talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think they're very, very bad problems. I know there are people who like Snowden. I think he's a traitor. I do, too. I do, too. Um, I like this question because I, I think that this is a key to our future. Katie, how do we engage with the 47% of Americans who voted for Trump? Watch Fox News. <laughs> no, I'm serious. It's my new, my new media source um, to really understand, because I think we're in an echo chamber, actually, if you're in the 47% or if you're on the other side, to really understand why we have such a deep divide in this country. Mm -hmm. And we have to start listening to each other. We're talking at different levels, and we really need to engage because we have real problems. And I think we all recognize what the problems are, right. but we don't understand or respect or trust where people are coming from. Right. And so I think it's deep listening, conversations, local solutions uh, to really some of the most critical problems in our community. But it's not going to end unless we sit down and have a conversation with people. Right. And I think that's what we're missing right now, yeah. is actually just civil discord. Right. So Daniel Patrick Moynihan famously said, you can have your own opinion, but not your own set of facts. Now we find out that facts just aren't facts anymore yeah. either. There's, there's facts, yeah. and then there's alternate facts. I have my facts, you have your facts. So Madeline, what about fake news? What about the fact that, um, that people really don't believe facts? that the media has been so feckless, but also pilloried uh, now out of the White House, that I don't think people really know really what is true. Uh, and I do think that ideology is driving a lot of it. My 89-year-old father watches MSNBC all the time, and I tell him that one hour a day he has to watch Fox, yeah. because he has to hear that other point of view, plus I need to know what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> but, the erosion of the sense of having a sense of shared information and having maybe a spectrum of opinion, but 
at least the similar facts. I don't think we even have the same facts anymore. What does that say to I, you? I think it, it truly is a problem. It's, it's a, a paradox in that there's more capability to get information than ever before. Mm -hmm. uh, you can Google something or quickly look it up in some way. And yet, um, it's very hard to figure out what really is true. And the only way to do it is to compare. I think that's, uh, um, in that way, alternative information is useful in terms of trying to figure things out. What is interesting is that um, I do think the media, I, I frankly think that they did, uh, were a little bit too helpful to Trump at the beginning because every time he called in. Right, those um, emails. You know, they would think, aha, my ratings will go up. Right. Uh, I have spent a lot of time with journalists. I think they are now having real kind of, um, uh, well, Chuck Todd has done this, this ad in terms right. of kind of what did we do and uh, how did we get into this mess. Right. I think that they need to analyze themselves. We need to help them. But we also need to make sure that they're never called the enemy of the people. Right. Because they, um, a free press is what makes this a democracy. Right. But I think we're going through a phase. That's right. A, yeah. I think you're right. I think they, I think they veered over into the entertainment realm a little bit too much. And, uh, you know, when he started calling in the shows, it started to be ridiculous that they were all taking the phone call. And I thought, no, 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 don't be doing that. The next thing you know, he'll be phoning in to meet the press. The president, as you know, if the president was going to be in Palm Springs playing golf and something happened and needed to get on to meet the press, he had to get on an airplane yeah. and go. You couldn't phone in to meet the press eight months ago. Now, apparently, Donald Trump can phone in anywhere. Madeline, throughout your life, when you've broken through, you've also kept the door open behind you to make sure that women could follow you through. And women and other people that have never had access. I'm starting to feel as if we're still in that struggle and that as much as we thought we were going to have maybe a big victory in November and have things really change, the most competent woman didn't get elected and women didn't vote for her. How does that make you feel? Well, let me just say, I have for a very long time said there's a special place in hell for women who don't help each other. Yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, that was a setup. <laughs> but let me let me say the following thing, and it comes really from my own experience of having taken a very long time to get where I was going. And when I uh, started, I went back to graduate school when my twins were a year old, and I had more problem from women who said, why aren't you at home with your children? Uh, and uh, my hollandaise sauce is so much better than yours. Uh, and just generally very judgmental and difficult. I think, so we are, we do two things to each other. One, we're judgmental. And two, we project our own weakness onto other women. So when I was uh, working with Geraldine Ferraro when she was the candidate, we'd be somewhere um, you know, in Iowa, and a housewife would come up and say, how is she going to talk to a Russian? I can't talk to a Russian. Well, nobody was asking this other woman to do that. So um, we have a way of kind of pulling each other down. I also think there is the problem of the queen bee complex, yeah. which is if there's only one job, I'm going to have it, and you're not going to do it. And so I do think we are each other's problems. I, however, 
never said that one had to vote for every woman, I would not vote for Sarah Palin. So uh, <laughs> it has nothing to do with that. Uh, um, and I got into trouble for the following thing, because I was, we were up in New Hampshire, and it's an applause line that I've always had, and what people didn't hear was what actually happened. I was talking to Hillary, and I said, therefore, you are going to the other place because of all the things that you've done for women. That's right. So, That's right. Uh, that would be heaven, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If we're at the end, I want to ask you, yes. to, you asked about hope, and I think an appropriate way to talk about this is about today. Because I just read a statistic that there actually are more women in jobs across the world uh, than there had been. It's still kind of like less than 25%, but it's gone up by quite a lot mm -hmm. in terms of women that are in their, in their governments, either in the executive or their parliaments. That is a very big deal. And more women that are scattered through. I do think, um, I actually, when I became secretary, made women's issues central to American mm -hmm. foreign policy because we know that societies are more stable when women are economically and politically empowered. And then Hillary took it to a whole other level. And, and I do think that to celebrate International Women's Day, I think the hope is in women. Yeah. That we can, in fact, we have peripheral vision, we're much better at that. We know how to multitask, um, and we actually get things done. And um, the only problem... Um, the only problem is that there's, no, there's plenty of place in the world for mediocre men. There is no place for mediocre women. So we have to work four times as hard to get things done and support each other in all of that. And so being here with you, I obviously was a pretty good mom, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Very good mom. Uh, but I, I really do think... The cross-generational thing is very important. I do think, I do teach. I think that um, a lot of young women think that the battles are won. They are not. not. And we have to continue to help each other and not take anything for granted because the world needs us to be out there working very, very hard and supporting each other. Well, that is a rally cry. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Katie. I want to extend our thanks to Madeleine Albright, former U.S. Secretary of State, and Katie Albright, Executive Director of the San Francisco Child Abuse Prevention Center. I also want to thank our audiences here and on the radio, television, and the internet. I'm Alan Tauscher, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, it is adjourned. Thank you for joining us for this week-to-week -week presentation of a recent Commonwealth Club program. I'm John Zipperer, host of Week to Week, and I invite you to find us online at commonwealthclub.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Many nonprofits rely on events to raise money, create space for community gathering, and offer opportunities to network. But how many hours in a day do community leaders have when they're busy changing the world? Imagine your next event, gala, festival, or celebration professionally executed with creative ideas and ideals to match your community service. IDK is the community's trusted event production company. Visit idkevents.com for all your event production needs. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. 
So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community.